that the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. This is from Paul's first missionary journey. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. Then when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of this and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe in the surrounding regions. And there they continued to preach the gospel. He prays there for our disciples. Once they found out that these people were on the way to kill him, they fled. Paul and his apostolic team fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby. There's nothing in the text all about, at all about that being sinful in any way or cowardly in any way. But that's what the Spirit led them to do. Later, after a fruitful ministry in Lystra, Jews from Iconium came over and dragged Paul out of the city and stoned him, left him for dead. When he came to, he doesn't go back into the city. He leaves. He and Barnabas leave for Derby. But after he preaches the gospel in Derby, you know what Paul did? He went right back to Lystra. Right back. Isn't that just like Paul? Went right back to Iconium. Right back to Antioch. See, what I think we learn from that is there's a time to stay, there's a time to leave, and then there, there may be a time to come back. On the second missionary journey, Paul is arrested and jailed in Philippi in that very famous incident. When he's freed, he wants to stay, but the believers there beg him to go. Eventually, they prevail, and Paul moves on from Philippi. In Thessalonica, the opposition again is fierce against him. The mob tries to find Paul. They can't find him. So they drag his friend Jason before the governmental authorities. And they threaten him. That night, Paul and Silas escape and make their way to Berea. That time, it is time to go. In Berea, again, opposition surfaces. And Paul flees, heads to the coast, leaving Silas and Timothy behind. Still later in Paul's ministry, Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem, even though he is convinced that if he does go to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and very likely killed. Well, he was arrested. He wasn't killed, but he was arrested, just like he thought he would be. When faced with dangerous situations, sometimes the Holy Spirit led Paul to flee. And other times, the Holy Spirit led Paul right into what is perceived to be danger. There's a big discussion about this, whether Paul was right or wrong to go to Jerusalem. The text settles it. The Spirit led him to Jerusalem. End of discussion. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't being arrogant by going to Jerusalem. He was right. The Holy Spirit led him there. Wherever the Spirit leads him is the right place to be. So there were times when the Holy Spirit led Paul to flee danger. And there were other times when the Holy Spirit led Paul to stay. There were still other times when he fled the danger and then went right back into it. There may be a day sometimes when you have to make that decision. Do I stay? Do I go? But there's no verse that I'm going to be able to point you to that says, okay, then you need to stay in every and all circumstances. You need to go in every and all circumstances. That's why we have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. Sometimes we've got a real macho kind of idea about Christianity that's not a biblical idea. And we need to be very, very careful with that. You might have guessed in our passage tonight, we find Nehemiah involved in a situation 
that included the danger. There were people that wanted to kill him. I think that qualifies, don't you, as a dangerous situation. It's not an easy situation for him because he's a principled leader. He's a courageous man. People are watching, though. They're watching very carefully to see what this man of God would do when faced with a dangerous situation, when faced with a situation where people had threatened to kill him and they had every reason to believe that they were serious. What is he going to do? When his actions, no matter what they were, reflect faith in Yahweh, would he act in such a way that he that he demonstrated that he really believed Yahweh would take care of him? Well, we'll see in our passage tonight, won't we? When Nehemiah's enemies heard that the wall was essentially finished, the only thing left to do was to build the gates, Nehemiah's enemies decide to take a different approach. This time they're going to try what I would term as an oblique attack rather than a frontal attack. And they're going to do what they can to eliminate Nehemiah personally. Before, they just tried to frighten everybody that's working on the wall. That didn't work. Nehemiah stood up. He organized the whole situation. He put watch guards on the, the towers. He armed the people at the wall so half of them were working and half of them were armed. Do you remember that? And so the attack that Sambalat and Tobiah had planned didn't ever materialize. Now they come at it a different way. Now they come at it with an attempt to eliminate Nehemiah personally. If they could either kill Nehemiah or if they could so discredit Nehemiah that his leadership was no longer effective, then they'd still win. That's what they're going to try to do. They either want to do him physical harm or they want to discredit his leadership. Their philosophy was much like the Pharisees at a later time, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's the philosophy in Nehemiah chapter 6. In verses 1 through 2, Now it came about when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, to Geshem the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that no breach remained in it, although at that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Shephirim in the plain of Ono, but they were planning to harm me. How he knew that, I don't know. Perhaps he had intelligence information that came in. Maybe he just knew those guys. Sometimes people just know. The plain of Ono was about 25 miles west, just a little bit north of Jerusalem, near Judah's border with Samaria and Ashdod. If you've been to Israel, you've been to the plain of Ono. Because the plain of Ono is located where the international airport for Tel Aviv is now. So if you've flown into Jerusalem, if you've flown into Israel, you've been to this spot where Sanballat proposes that they have a meeting. This is not a safe place for Nehemiah to meet, and he knows it. Anybody that's a careful Bible student would know this is not a safe place to meet. You can see it, don't you? It's right there in the text. It's the plain of, oh, no. You see, so anybody, anything with a name like that, oh, no, they should have known not to meet there. Well, actually, there's a little bit more than that. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Why should I stop the work while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. So he, he turns these invitations for disaster down four times. Basically, he says, I can't waste my time to come talk to you while I'm finishing up this work on the wall. So then in verse 5, they take a different tactic. 
they're, they're shifting their strategy and tactics quite rapidly now. In verses 5 through 7, Sanballat tries something different. He sends an open letter to Nehemiah. This is unusual because open letters were not common in the ancient world. Closed letters, sealed letters were common. But open letters weren't common. They're common today. In this case, this is, a, this is an attempt, again, to discredit Nehemiah's leadership. In verse 5, then Sanballat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time with an open letter in his hand. So the, the letter's to Nehemiah, but everybody's going to know about it. So there are other copies. In it, it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gashmi says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore, you're rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. And you've also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you, a king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together to see if worm is out. First of all, he's spreading a lie. And after he spreads the lie, he says, now you're going to be in big trouble with the Persian king. Come here, let's see if we can't work together on this. Come on, come and talk to me, and let's see if I can't help you get out of this mess. Well, it was a bald-faced lie. But the truth is irrelevant to evil people. They'll say what they want. They'll lie about what they want in order to get what they want. We see that in our country all the time. Kill federal funding to Planned Parenthood, and you're going to kill women. I heard that over and over again last week. Kill funding to Planned Parenthood, and you're going to kill women? Keep funding Planned Parenthood, and you're going to kill women. Excuse me, but that's what's going to happen. It's the polar opposite. The people don't care. They don't care if they're lying or not. When lies are told, either about you or an institution that you're associated with, when outright lies are told, decisions have to be made. And these are not easy decisions. You have to decide, do I refute this lie? Do I come out strong against it and refute this lie? Or do we just let it go and let it die a death on its own? It depends upon the situation. Sometimes it's best just to let a lie go. Sometimes it's best just to let criticism pass. One of the needs lessons I was taught from a practical standpoint in seminary was when I was Robert Leitner's, Dr. Robert Leitner's intern. Actually, Paul Shockley and I were Dr. Leitner's last interns. After that, he didn't have any more interns, and after that, he retired. I don't think that there was any necessary connection between the two. But when I was his intern, I was really, really busy. I, I was going to seminary on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I would commute from Houston to Dallas and back on the same day. I worked Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, and we had planted this church, so we passed in the church on Sunday morning. But Dr. Leitner knew that I needed to learn this lesson, that, that there's a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. But he showed me this review that he had written of a fellow's book. I remember the guy was from Florida. I'd never heard of the author before. But the fellow was from Florida, and he didn't particularly care for Dr. Leitner's review of his book. Not at all did he care for it. He had written quite an extensive refutation of Leitner's review. And it was pretty ugly, actually. Ugly toward us. So this is what he said. He gave me his review. Then he gave me the guy's book. And then he gave me the guy's letter about the review. And he said, I want you to go home this weekend. I want you to read this book. Read my review. And then read the fellow's response to my review. 
And I did it, even though I didn't have a lot of time. It was hard to get that done, but I did it. And then he said, uh, the fourth thing he wanted me to do was to write a response to the guy, back to the guy, based upon all the information I had learned. He's going to teach me how to handle this. So I read the guy's book. I read Dr. Lightner's review. I read the guy's response. And then I wrote a response out for Dr. Lightner to write back to him. The guy's response was extremely acerbic. That means he was ugly. So I responded pretty much in kind. And I wrote, wrote a, a pretty acerbic response right back. And so we sat down in his office that morning when I met with him. And he said, well, what'd you think? I said, well, I read the guy's book. He said, what'd you think of his book? He said, it was, it was really pretty weak. There are holes all through it. I said, I see why you didn't particularly care for it. He said, well, what'd you think of my review? I said, I thought your review was fair. And he said, well, what'd you think of the guy's letter? I said, I think the guy's letter was sophomoric. You ought to be able to handle a review of your book like that and the things that were pointed out were legitimate things that were pointed out. He said, well, okay, did you, did you write something for me? And I said, well, here it is. And he read it. You know, you know how he is with some things, you know. I said, okay, so what's the bottom line? What do you think I should do? I said, you know what? I had never even heard of this guy. And I talked to other people. They hadn't heard of him either. Nobody's ever heard of this fellow. I said, my opinion is this. If you enter into a dialogue with him, you're elevating him to a level that he doesn't deserve at this point. My advice would be, let the whole thing go. Let the thing go. He said, well, I'm glad you came to that conclusion. I had never intended to say that, you know. But I wanted you to be able to see that there are times when you respond, and then there are times when it's better not to respond. And I learned that. There are times when it's better just to let it go. Let the criticism go. You don't have to answer that criticism. But there are other times when the criticism does have to be answered. If there are certain charges made against the pastor, for example, that are insignificant, you let them go. If there are certain charges made against the pastor, for example, that are going to damage that ministry if they're not answered, if the silence is going to speak to one's guilt, for example, then you've got to get up there and scream from the rooftops and make your case. There's times to work with it, and then there's times to let it go. Nehemiah is not going to let this one go because he can't. His leadership is at stake. The purpose of the open letter was to create division among the Jews who might begin to wonder if Nehemiah's leadership wasn't motivated from noble pride. That's what Sanballat is really saying. He's leading you, but he has ulterior motives. He's using you in order to make himself king. He's got to rebuild this wall so that he can make himself king. Then in verses 8 and 9, Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. He answers him right back. These are lies. This never happened. That is not my motivation. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hand. This is one of the things that makes Nehemiah such a great leader. He has the crisis, and he prays, and then he acts. Then he has the crisis, and he prays, and then he acts. Prayer is always followed by action in Nehemiah. Action is always preceded by prayer. It's a brief prayer, but it's a significant prayer. Then there's another line of attack in verses 10 through 14. This is a very subtle line. 
When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, the son of Mechabel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. And they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And should one such as I go into the temple to save his life, I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they should reproach me. Remember, O God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these works of theirs, and Neviah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. This man claimed that he had a prophecy from God. He tried to scare Nehemiah into thinking assassins were coming that night to kill him so that he would leave and flee, seek sanctuary in the temple. The reason, watch this, the reason Nehemiah knew that this was not a prophecy from God was because what they had told Nehemiah to do violated the Mosaic law. Numbers chapter 1, verse 51, verse chapter 3, verse 10, and chapter 18, verse 7. The Mosaic law prohibited anyone but priests from entering the holy and most holy places in the temple. That's how he knew, among other things, that it was a false prophecy. God does not give people prophetic messages that contradict his revealed will. God will not tell you to do something prophetically that's contrary to the scripture. And Nehemiah knew that. That's why he sees through this. The prophecy could not have come from God since it counseled disobedience to the Mosaic law. This is a dual threat because still they're trying to show the people that Nehemiah is crazy. That he has no real concern for the right and the wrong of the Mosaic law. That he's an, he is an ethical pragmatist. That whatever turns out to be best for Nehemiah is what he's going to do. Which would lend credence to the lie that they had come up with before. So Nehemiah is catching it every which way but Sunday in this chapter. But he's not threatened by it. In fact, in verse 14, Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these words of theirs. Nehemiah is pretty bold. What Nehemiah is saying is, the things, that are, the things that they're doing to me, let it boomerang back upon them. I don't think it's because of any personal gain that Nehemiah wants to achieve. I think this is because Nehemiah understood, like all great leaders do, that the cause that he was leading was more important than him as a leader. It's important to go back to Jerusalem, get that wall rebuilt so temple worship could again be reinstituted in its fullest sense because the Jews couldn't worship in their fullest sense without temple worship. I think what Nehemiah understood as a principal leader was that the cause is good. It's important. He's the face of the cause. And what Nehemiah wants to do, he doesn't want to be destroyed personally because if he goes down, then the cause goes down with him. He wants these charges to boomerang right back against him. All the evil that they're turning upon him, all he's asking God is the same evil that they're turning upon me, let it go right back at them. That's all he's asking. Then in verses 15 through 19, 
the wall is finished. So the wall was completed on the 25th day, so the month of Elul, in 52 days. That is absolutely Verse 16, and it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it that they lost their confidence for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And also in those many days, letters were sent from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah and and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, son of Berechiah. Verse 19, Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. It's kind of an odd little paragraph. The key points to it are the wall is finished in 52 days. Both the, the men of Judah, men and women of Judah, and the enemies recognize that's not happening without God's help. It's not going to rebuild that wall in that amount of time if God wasn't with you. The wall is finished on approximately September the 20th. It began in the first few days of July and finishes in September. It was the previous November, December, when Nehemiah first heard about the problem. That was chapter 1, verse 1. And in March, April, he presented his plan to the king. And then the trip to Jerusalem takes two to three months. So he gets there in perhaps June-ish, maybe, maybe as late as July. And then the wall's rebuilt by September. This whole thing started November, December, and it goes all the way from Persia to Jerusalem and gets the wall rebuilt before the anniversary of of him becoming aware of it even takes place. The enemy's self-confidence faded as soon as they saw that the work was done with God's help. By way of a, a parenthetical explanation, Tobiah the Ammonite was able to make some inroads into Judah because he's related to the Jews that are working on the wall by marriage. It's an interesting parenthetical note that several of the Jews that are part of Nehemiah's group that are working on the wall are also loyal to Tobiah. That shows me again what a wonderful leader Nehemiah is. Because not everyone that he's leading owes their loyalties and allegiance to him. He was able to lead a group that wasn't 100% with him and still get it finished in 52 days in spite of all the opposition from within and from without. Business opposition from within. Then in the first four verses of chapter 7, I actually finish up the material from chapter 6. I'd like to cover those tonight. Now it came about when the wall was rebuilt, and I set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I put Hanai, my brother, remember him? He, we saw him in the first chapter. That I put Hanai, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his own post, and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. It almost seems like an anticlimactic conclusion to chapter 6 in these first four verses of chapter 7. Actually, we have another principle of leadership, and that is that a good leader doesn't let up 
after a significant victory. It is a truism that we're most often vulnerable to defeat right after a great victory. Nehemiah knew this, so he's careful to follow through after he has the success of rebuilding the wall. It's no time to take a break. As far as Nehemiah is concerned, it's time to continue to push on. There's going to be time to rest soon enough later, but it's not right now. That's what so many people do. We see that in so many realms. We see it in the business realm. We've seen it in the military realm historically. You see it in the sports realm all the time. A team will be way behind. They use all their energy. They get ahead, and then they start high-fiving each other and acting like everything's really good, and the coach points up and says, no, there's still two minutes left in the game. It's not over. And the next thing they know, the same people that were high-fiving everybody and dancing around and acting like fools walk off the court losing. Nehemiah's not going to let that happen to them. There's going to be time to rest later. It's not now. There's still organization that has to be done. So what Nehemiah does is take steps to ensure that the city is going to remain secure by appointing guards. Temple worship is going to begin to flourish now. The gatekeepers usually guarded the temple entrance. But Nehemiah moves them away from the temple entrance and places them at the city gate. Because that's where the danger is, not at the temple entrance. They need to keep people out of the city to begin with, the bad guys, out of the city. That's where the danger was, was at the gate. So to minimize the threat of potential invaders, Nehemiah also orders that the gates not stay open all day long. The gates are only going to be open for a limited period of time, only during the busiest hours of the day. That's what this confusing little phrase in verse 3 means. Let's read it again, and I think it'll make sense now. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. In other words, don't open them first thing in the morning. We're going to only open them for a limited period of time during the day. And when they're open, they're going to be guarded by the temple guards. Then they're going to be shut. When they're shut, let them not only shut them, but bolt the doors. So what he's doing is he's taking reasonable precautions to protect the city. Because this is the center of Yahweh worship to the entire world. This is the center of Yahweh worship. And if the center of Yahweh worship is secured, then more people are going to come into the city. What he's saying is this city population is sparse. It makes sense that it would be. Before the wall is rebuilt, the city's not protected. There were a couple things that ancient cities needed to have. One is protection and the other is water. Cities were built either high up where they could be protected by the geography or have a serious wall around them. And also they had to be built where there was a water supply. Jerusalem is not a safe place to live if there's no wall around it. It's not protected simply by its geography. So Nehemiah is taking reasonable precautions to minimize the threat of potential invaders. The city probably could have held about 40,000 people. But at this time, it's not holding anywhere close to that because nobody wants to live there. The smaller the population that lives in Jerusalem, the more vulnerable they are to attack. There's just not enough people to defend it. So Nehemiah proposed a plan that would increase the population and with it the security of Jerusalem. All these things are reasonable. Sometimes we get this wrong-headed notion that if we take reasonable precautions, if we lock our car doors, that we're somehow sinful. If we have a security system on our home, that that's showing no faith in God. 
If we put our seatbelt on, we're told God can't take care of us. Well, that's the law. We've got to do that. No, that's not true. It's not a sin to take reasonable precautions. And that's all Nehemiah is doing here. He's not showing any lack of faith in Yahweh at all. This is a very interesting chapter, or at least chapter in a few verses. In this chapter, Nehemiah is a picture of principled leadership. He doesn't wilt under the pressure and the threats from evil men. And when the wall is finished and the gates are up, he understands that the work is not finished. He says there's no time to rest. There's no time to celebrate that there's still work to do. He does not rest until the work is done, and I mean really done, really finished. That.